Welcome to Top in Tech. Last week, Parliament in the UK finally passed the Online Safety Bill. The UK government's press release welcomed this in the following words. Britain makes internet safer as Online Safety Bill finished and ready to become law. The most powerful child protection laws in a generation. The bill will make the UK the safest place in the world to be online. So, according to the government's own words, the bill has a lot of hype to live up to. My name is Colin Darcy. I'm a Senior Practice Director at Global Council. And joining me today to check whether the online safety bill does in fact live up to this hype is Josh Bates, who leads our online safety bill coverage in the London office. So please welcome Josh and thank you for joining me today. So Josh, as I said at the start, the bill has passed through Parliament but that doesn't necessarily mean it's part of the UK statute book, i.e. hasn't got royal assent yet. And there's clearly going to be elements that need to be implemented over time. So could you just start off by telling us exactly what happens next with the bill? Thanks, Conan. And sure, so the online safety bill has been in some form or another in Parliament for several years now. It has seen four different prime ministers, several secretaries of state to shepherd this piece of legislation through Parliament. But it's finally concluded its passage and is now just awaiting the formality of royal assent. So this is the official process in which the monarch of the day will bring this piece of legislation into the statute book. And for those of you who are a fan of parliamentary process out there, this can only take place whilst parliament is in session. So we're currently waiting for parliament to return from the conference recess. So we're expecting this to be brought into law somewhere between the 16th of October and the end of October. And once that happens, that will really kick off this process of implementation. So Ofcom will begin to put out consultations, they'll begin to engage with industry, and they'll effectively look to begin to bring this bill in in a gradual process. So it'll likely take up to about two years, perhaps, for this bill to be implemented, with a real focus first on illegal harms and child safety, which you can see for quite obvious reasons is a priority both for the government and for Ofcom. But step by step, they'll seek to bring in different elements of this bill to ensure that platforms have time to adapt to these new requirements and that issues such as child safety are brought forward as quickly as possible. But in some ways, this is only sort of the halfway point in the journey of this piece of legislation. And a lot of questions are still to be answered in exactly how it's going to be implemented. Right. So you would have got the impression, Josh, from the press release that I quoted at the start of this podcast, that this bill was about to come in and make a massive difference. One other bit that I didn't read out at the time talked about how it's going to stop the internet being a wild west, which given you've just said it's going to come in fully, not for a couple of years, suggests by implication that we have a couple more years of the wild west continuing. So there might be a little bit of a expectation management that's going to have to happen now between the government and Ofcom on one side, and then many of the campaign groups who've been arguing for an online safety bill and the media and other politicians who are really pushing for this to come in and make an impact as soon as possible. What I wanted to do now, Josh, though, was to move on to that issue of of the substance of the bill. And I wanted to probe on issues that were significant at the start of the process, but how they may have changed from the original bill. So for those people who followed this for a while, it's been going on for years. So exactly what's changed in really important, meaningful ways. And I think the place to start there is probably 
who is going to be captured by this bill. And there's this idea of different categorization, different categories according to different types of companies. And we have this category one, which is obviously the category that's going to face the highest regulatory burden. So can you just talk us through that, in particular, which countries are going to be caught by that category one threshold, but also what other types of companies are in scope? Sure. So, so for a while now, we've known in the broader sense what kind of platforms and companies are going to be captured by this legislation. But over the recent months, there's been a lot of toing and froing about exactly how they're going to be categorized and, and how they're going to each be affected by the legislation. And category one has always been the category that is going to experience the most amount of regulatory scrutiny. They have to comply with the most uh, stringent requirements of the regulation. For instance, Category 1 platforms have to provide user empowerment tools to their users, allowing them to control in some way or shape or form the kinds of content that they're coming across, which could perhaps be harmful. And they also have some additional duties around preserving freedom of speech, journalistic exemptions, elements like this, which for smaller platforms might be quite strenuous and quite a stretch to have to comply with. And for a while now, the government has basically said that category one would be reserved for those companies that have reach, so high amounts of users, high amounts of visits from people onto their sites and platforms, but then also a high amount of risk. So it has features which the government feel are risky, perhaps, or could allow for more harms than uh, other platforms. Um, but recently in the Lords, what we saw was a push from Baroness Morgan and several other peers to change that to be risk or reach. So effectively, if you have a smaller platform that has particularly risky functionalities, they could become a category one platform as well. And this passed by a real fraction of a vote in the House of Lords. And there was quite a bit of suspicion that when it got to the Commons, the government would seek to sort of change this. But quite interestingly, the government introduced their own amendment, which effectively mirrored what Baroness Morgan and the other peers had looked to do. So now Ofcom are going to have a lot more flexibility when it comes to how they might recommend platforms be categorized. So you could see some quite small platforms which have quite risky functionalities suddenly brought into these much more sort of stringent requirements, which for, for small platforms with perhaps not as many um, staff or people who can help implement this, it could be a real risk and that could be quite a lot of additional workload that comes with these requirements. We may have had a little taster of it so far in recent days where the chair of the Culture, Media and Sport Committee in, in Parliament, Caroline Dynage, wrote to Rumble, the platform that uh, has been featuring Russell Brand um, recently and where he's made a lot of success and has a large following. And she, she wrote to them about their policy around monetization. And the CEO of Rumble replied saying, well, actually... We, we, we don't want to be interfered with by politicians and that actually we are in favor of free expression. Now, that sort of platform that probably under the original discussion of category one, Josh, probably would not have been fallen under that category because it wouldn't have had both reach and risk. However, there could now be a debate for a smaller platform like that about whether that risk element is sufficient to make them category one. But lots of work, as you've alluded to, that will go into these categories and uh, we will see what plays out as Ofcom does its homework. If we can move on to a different topic, Josh, which is around legal but harmful content. Now, 
that was one of the big issues earlier on in the bill. Uh, this idea that platforms would have obligations and duties around content that wasn't illegal but could still be harmful. I guess the sort of thing would be self-harm content or suicide content, stuff like that. There was a lot of hoo-ha throughout the legislative process where certain elements seemed to get stripped out, but perhaps not entirely. So could you just tell us, where did the bill end up in the legal but harmful side of things? Is it purely focused now on illegal content and removing that off platforms, or is it actually still wider than that? As you mean, as you say, the legal but harmful elements of the bill were very controversial from the start, especially amongst the conservative politicians, who effectively felt like this gave a free pass to platforms to define whatever they thought was harmful on their platforms and remove that. So instead of just keeping it purely to a what is illegal, what is legal, they could have a lot more control and say over what content was on their own platform. And so there were some conservative MPs who felt that this could allow for people to be cancelled or for there to be this sort of element of woke culture, which has been increasingly becoming an issue that Conservative Party wants to focus on. So when Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister and they took a step back with the online safety bill and looked again at what elements were most keeping it bogged down within the Commons, they decided to remove all of these legal but harmful clauses and instead replace them with what Michelle Donnellan called was the triple shield, and most importantly, these user empowerment tools I've spoken to before. So it's a little bit unclear at the moment what exactly these tools will look like, but effectively it's handing the control over to the users to decide whether or not they want to come across the kind of content that you mentioned before. But this in of itself has caused controversy as well, with some saying, well, that's only going to protect those who know about the controls or those who can find them. So there's been a lot of discussion and debate as well about how you make sure these user empowerment tools are accessible, how they're easily controlled by users, and just basically making sure that people know that they're there and that they can use them to protect themselves. So in a sense, the legal but harmful elements, which were fairly controversial within the Conservative Party at one point, and therefore the government's so-called stripped out of the bill and brought back a more refined bill, haven't entirely gone. And actually, if you look at it from the perspective of those companies that can have to implement these provisions, the fact that users get the choice or not almost doesn't really matter because those companies still have to find different ways of segmenting between different types of content that I guess the users can then choose between. So it is, in essence, still there, but also in a slightly slightly different format. So that originally headline announcing change probably wasn't quite what it, what it seemed maybe at the time. If we move on to a different issue then, Josh, a big criticism of the bill when it was first talked about, and indeed I think the online harms white paper which preceded it, was that it focused more on personal harms rather than broader economic harms, which I guess are personal harms too, but the economic aspect of harm and most primarily and prominent amongst that being online fraud. So can you just tell us, did, did online fraud make its way into the bill through the passage of the bill through Parliament? It did. It took quite a lot of pressure from campaigners and especially the likes of Martin Lewis. But under Nadine Dorries' stewardship, they'd introduced measures within the bill to include online fraud as one of the key targets of the legislation. But interestingly, it only made paid for advertisements within scope of the legislation. So if a 
fraudster is paying for advertisements on a social media platform or any other kind of online service, and they're using it to try to defraud people, then it's there's an onus on those platforms to try and protect their users to remove that fraudulent content. But there's been quite a lot of criticism as well that this just doesn't go far enough because, as I say, it's only that which is paid for advertisement. So if somebody is just using a platform to still promote fraud, still share it, but they've not paid for that platform to promote it or have it sort of as a preferred piece of content, it's not within scope. And increasingly, online fraud is just becoming one of the main pathways in which fraudulent activity takes place. And online fraud has just remained a really live issue within Parliament and within the government itself. An anti-fraud champion, the government trying to bring together the financial sector and the tech industry to try and find some common agreement. But the online safety bill will go some way in addressing these issues. But I can really see this becoming an issue further down the line, especially if, if a Labour government comes into power this could be one of the areas of online policy that they really look to address through their own means. So Josh, we've focused so far on what has changed in the bill, what either was in the bill and evolved throughout it or what wasn't in the bill has managed to make its way into it through the process. But one thing that was a major, major moment and perhaps didn't really change was around encryption. We had the major moment in the bill where Signal and WhatsApp threatened to leave the UK should the provisions related to encrypted services come into force. And that caused a major hullabaloo around whether the bill was actually in some ways scaring off businesses and undermining other parts of the government's agenda to make the UK a major tech hub in Europe and encourage inward investment in technology. So you just talk us through that, exactly what, what those provisions were and whether the substance did stay more or less the same and what that implications that has for how the bill might be implemented. Sure. I mean, this was perhaps the most dramatic debate and one of the more extended ones that took place within Parliament. This was essentially provisions within the bill that would grant Ofcom the power, should it so choose, to require messaging platforms and messaging platforms that use end-to-end encryption to require them to introduce some kind of tool which can scan for terrorist content or child sexual abuse content. Now, very notably, the bill wouldn't automatically require platforms to introduce this, but if Ofcom were to find that there were extensive amounts of this kind of content being shared on these platforms, these so-called safe havens, which some politicians have feared end-to-end encryption platforms could be, then they could force them to bring in these sorts of measures. And as you say, what's happened signal were highly critical of this, saying that if these powers were ever actually brought into effect, they could leave the UK, they wouldn't be willing to undermine people's privacy, and they have been continually pushing for this to be removed from the bill. And at the very last stage, they almost thought they'd succeeded. There was a bit of a miscommunication from Lord Parkinson that suggested that the government wouldn't actually bring these into force. But in reality, it was more a begrudging acceptance from the government that this sort of technology that the government wants these platforms to introduce doesn't really exist yet. There isn't really a way for platforms and messaging apps to scan end-to-end encrypted messages for this kind of content without undermining people's privacy. Whilst these powers are still going to be put in within the bill and whilst they are going to be in this final version, 
there's a real question as to whether Ofcom or the government will ever get to a point where they feel this is necessary because the actual impact to consumers of perhaps WhatsApp or Signal leaving the UK would be pretty huge and it would be seen as quite a dramatic move, I think, for Ofcom to request this invasive search from messaging platforms. So I think this will be a fight for another day or a fight that just never actually happens as Ofcom could choose just never to use this power. It centres in on this issue that we're starting to see a little bit with Microsoft's reaction to Activision, the fact that Threads, that Meta didn't launch Threads in the European Union. We've seen Apple have warnings around the UK's Investigatory Powers Act. There is a broader sense of the tech sector pushing back against rules that are developing, particularly in London, but also in, in Brussels, in a way in which I don't think was really happening five, six years ago, um, after when the sector really moved to try and embrace the regulatory agenda and to position themselves as good corporate citizens. I think there's been a little bit of a revision of that and looking to, looking to push back. So we'll see how that plays out. But clearly, given half of Westminster itself runs on WhatsApp, that isn't an idle threat that any regulator is going to want to push um, in any time soon. And Melanie Dawes, the head of Ofcom and her team, have a lot of other elements that you've alluded to already, Josh, which they have to think about implementing that they will clearly prioritize first. Just to conclude, and it sort of links to what I was just saying there, Josh, looking at the international element here and how the UK system will interact with other countries. One thing that happened when the UK passed the age-appropriate design code was it was actually had, a, had an interesting impact on the policies globally of some international platforms, but it also was adopted in other parts of the world, most obviously California, as a push, I believe, in other US states to do the same. So I just wanted to get your take on whether you think there will be a so-called, in, in, in EU terms, it's the Brussels effect where EU regulation is exported globally. Do you think there's a potential London effect here with the online safety bill to other parts of the world? I think the bill will definitely have an effect on other regions as it becomes a very easy piece of legislation that other countries and nations can point to as a possible pathway to go down. But I think a lot of it is going to be the case of the proof is in the pudding. I mean, Ofcom are very prepared to bring in the bill. They have hundreds of staff already ready to go. So I think they'll be moving quite quickly. And I think there'll be a lot of international actors watching how quickly and how well they can implement this legislation. But it's not always quite so easy as copying and pasting legislation from one region to another. I mean, you mentioned the age-appropriate design code. And as you say, California have sort of looked to replicate that. But they've come across several sort of legal blocks now and the design code in California hasn't actually been implemented yet. And other states which have sought to bring in similar pieces of legislation have met similar blocks. And I think tech platforms are wary of seeing these these pieces of legislation being brought in just unanimously across the world. And I think especially at sort of local and state levels, there's a lot more of a sort of a fight going on. But I mean, at, at the national level in the US, you've already seen the uh, Kids Online Safety Act. Whether that will look to the online safety bill as a template is quite interesting. But I mean, the politics of each nation playing to the state of play increasingly as well. I mean, with the US currently bogged down with possible impeachment of President Biden and the upcoming US election, this bipartisan 
work that we've seen in the UK on elements of the online safety bill might just not be able to be found in the US. So it will definitely be interesting to see over this next year whether the online safety bill starts to emerge in other regions. But for now, I imagine most will be looking to see how effective this legislation is and how easily implemented it is. Well, we will see how that pans out, Josh. I mean, one thing I would be very surprised about would be whether platforms voluntarily apply some of the online safety bills measures to other parts of the world. If you think about user empowerment, I think uh, they'll be very reluctant to have to bring in that system for all their global markets. But we shall see as the implementation takes place. Thank you very much for taking us through that. It's been a long journey and I suspect it's not quite finished yet and there'll be a few bumps in the road with the implementation process. So we will no doubt return to this in the future. For those who have been listening today, thank you so much for joining. If you're interested in this topic and you'd like to speak to Josh or other colleagues at Global Council's tech media telecoms team, you can find all the details in the link in the podcast note, or you can go on to www.global-council.com. Thanks for joining us and please join us next week. Bye-bye.